All right, 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. In chapter 24, David had an opportunity. David had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he used his decision to not kill Saul as proof to reason with Saul, to explain that if I wanted to kill you, I could have. But while Saul acknowledged his wrong against David, Saul does not repent. He goes home. And thus, when we get to chapter 25, David is experiencing a small respite from King Saul's murderous pursuits. But a respite doesn't mean an easy life. David and his men are still fugitives at this point. They don't have real beds or real homes or a real livelihood even. And thus, when someone else decides to mistreat David, he decides he's had enough of being wronged. And only the reasonable heart of a godly woman named Abigail is able to dissuade him. So chapter 25, we begin in verse 1. And in these first three verses here, we're going to set the stage for this conflict that's going to come up in this chapter. Verse 1, it says, And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, but the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Here we see that we get this announcement that's just almost kind of out of the blue, and we really don't even spend a whole lot of time on it, that Samuel dies. Uh, We met Samuel way back in chapter one of this book that's named after him, and He'd been faithful as a youth during the evil days of Eli's leadership. He's faithfully led Israel during the prime of his life, and in his old age, he faithfully anointed and advised two kings. And now Samuel has finished his race. And all the Israelites, they gathered together and mourned him and eventually buried him in his home there at Ramah. Samuel's life had such an amazing impact that everyone showed up to say goodbye and to mourn him. It's interesting, he had such an impact, as life did, that two books cover events beyond his lifetime that are, are named after him. I mean, everything we're going to find in the rest of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel, he's not alive for. And yet, those sections of Scripture are named after him. And I don't know about you, but I want to have an impact on people that last beyond my life, don't you? You know, Charles Spurgeon, he said his his most important goal in life was he had, he had it's either four or five friends. I think it's five friends when he was growing up. And, uh, and, and none of them were saved when, when he became a preacher, a pastor. And that was the goal of his life, was to lead all of them to Christ. Four of them got saved throughout his life. The final one got saved at his memorial service. I want to have that kind of a legacy, you know, where even after I'm gone, you know, that people are still coming to the Lord through the influence I had. Now, the reason it moves on so quickly is because while Samuel's race is done, um, David's race is not done yet. 
And so the account moves quickly back to him, and we will find David experiencing a test that seeks to prevent him from finishing well. It says, and David arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, Paran is the desert region that's south of Judah, so it's outside Israel. It's about 15 miles south of En Gedi, the, the oasis, mountain oasis area that David's been hanging out in. Um, it's not really considered a part of anywhere because of how desolate it is. It doesn't really belong to any nation. Israel wandered in this exact region for 38 years before they headed back to the promised land under Moses. Now, it doesn't tell us why David leaves the promised land this time. Perhaps he feared that Saul would return to hunting them now that Samuel was dead. We don't know. What we do know is that while he was there, he ended up running across some shepherds who belonged to a wealthy Israeli. And so it's going to introduce him before it explains how they are connected. It says in verse 2, and there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, Maon is a few miles west of En Gedi, and it mentions that this guy, he lives in Maon, but his possessions, his work, his occupation, his products there in Carmel. Carmel is, this is not the same mountain or hilly region where uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven. That's the Mount Carmel that's famous. But this was a village in Judah about a 30-minute walk from the uh, city of Maon. Uh, Saul actually, it mentions, the scripture mentions that Saul passed through here on his victory parade after defeating the Amalekites. Remember when he's taking the king of the Amalekites all around with him, wherever he was going, parading him as proof of his victory and how he'd been faithful to the Lord? In fact, he put up a, a statue or a monument to commemorate the, a victory right here in Carmel. Carmel was a city or a village that was a bastion of loyalty to King Saul. And this is not area that's an area that's you know, friendly to David. And it mentions that this individual, this wealthy Israeli, it says he was very great. He had a high status in the region, likely on account of his wealth. And it mentions that he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, it was, shearing his sheep wasn't just, you know, oh, it's time to, time to shave the sheep. Uh, they would always have a big celebration when they would uh, shear the sheep. So this was usually a, a, a time of fest, a festiv festivities and feasting. And so uh, there's likely a big get-together here for all of his employees. Verse 3 introduces us to him. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. Now Nabal means, well, it can mean a couple things. It, it can mean jug or jar. Uh, so maybe, you know, mom and dad called him Jughead. <laughs> Nabal, though, can also mean a fool, uh, which will come into play in our account here. However, I doubt his parents named him after a fool. You know, it's not like he came out and he's all silly looking, ah, that kid's a fool. Nabal, there you go. It's likely they were wealthy just like he was, and they had named him to be the one who they would pass their possessions onto. He was a jug, a jar, a container for their wealth, you know? Isn't that nice to know? Mom and dad named you because you'd be the one to carry on their wealth. Abigail, on the other hand, has a very spiritual name. Abigail, it means that my father, God, is joy. That's what her name means. Now, we're introduced to her character first. It says she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. 
Uh, the word here, good, it, it, it means something, can mean something that's morally proper. It can also mean something that's beautiful. Understanding is wisdom, discretion, the ability to act in accordance with the standards around you. In other words, um, I can intellectually know that the speed limit is 65 on I-4 in certain parts, but wisdom would encourage me and help me to go that speed limit rather than go 95. She had cultivated a beautiful ability to make good decisions, a wonderful character trait. It also mentions here that she was physically attractive. She had a beautiful countenance. On the other hand, (laughs) the man, Nabal, he was churlish and evil in his doings. I've never been called churlish, thankfully. I I didn't know what it meant when I first heard the word many years ago. I'm glad no one called me churlish because it sounds horrible. It means harsh or cruel. It means you're a difficult person who creates hardships for others. And also mentions that he was evil, wicked in how he conducted his life. In other words, he was a difficult person to be around because he did wicked things. He did not fear God and how he conducted himself. He did what he wanted, when he wanted, and he had the wealth and the position to back it up. And it also mentions that he was of the house of Caleb. Now, Caleb, of course, was one of only three people who left Egypt I'm sorry, of only two people that left Egypt who got to enter the promised land. Caleb was a godly man. And so it's possible he's bringing up his descent because he's saying he was nothing like that godly man, Caleb. He was a descendant of Caleb, but nothing like him. Should have had a, he had a, a great legacy. He should have, should have known better than to live like this. Well, Verse 4 begins to tell us how David and this guy get connected. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. So David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Now since Maon is very close to En Gedi, what we find out as we go throughout this chapter is that Nabal's shepherds had regularly brought their sheep to that oasis region of En Gedi. We already learned last or a couple weeks ago that that's where Saul was hiding out, was in a cave in En Gedi that was protected by a sheep gate. So this was a common place for shepherds to bring their sheep. Now, we will learn later in the chapter that David's men had provided protection for these shepherds. They had helped to keep both predators and bandits away. And so the shepherds and David's men had struck up a friendship. And one of those shepherds who must have mentioned that the sheep shearing celebration had started and word reached David. So David says, ah, I'll see if Nabal will repay my men with kindness, the kind, my men's kindness by giving us some much needed supplies. So David sends out the young men. He says, I want you to go to Nabal and greet him in my name. It actually means to, um, the idea is to, you know, give him a personal blessing from me. And thus you shall say unto him that lives in prosperity. In other words, tell him that I wish him a long life. Say peace both to you and peace be to your house and peace be unto all that you have. Shalom, wellness, wholeness, security. I want everything that's going on in your life, everyone who's attached to you, I want it to be going well. I want you to be doing well and everything associated with you to be doing well. This was a beautiful blessing from David to a man who is very likely pro-Saul. And having delivered this kind greeting, David's men were then to make a request. Verse 7, and now I have heard that you have shears. In other words, that you're having this celebration, lots of food. Now your shepherds, which were with us, we did not hurt them. The word there means to shame or mistreat. 
And he says, we, neither was there aught missing unto them. We didn't steal any of your sheep. All the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will show you. Wherefore, let the young men, David's young men that he's sending, find favor in your eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray you, whatsoever comes to your hand unto your servants and to your son, David. Favor. The word there means compassion, kind-heartedness. Wherefore, we've done you a kindness. My men have done you a kindness. Would you please do a kindness to them? For we come in a good day, a festive, a joyful time. You've got excess right now. Would you be kind to us as well? And whatever, whatever you deem fit. I mean, I'm not asking for a specific amount. Whatever you, know, you want to give, we'll be, we'll be very blessed if you'll give it to us. In other words, your sheep are safe. You're enjoying the awesome benefits of that. And since you've been so blessed, would you mind sharing some of those blessings with us since we've helped you out as well and treated you with kindness? You might be saying, well, that's kind of presumptuous of David. He wasn't employed by this guy. No, David's not asking for wages. But David could have done evil and taken what he was asking for. The shepherds would have been no match for his battle-hardened men. David could have also demanded a portion for what he considered just compensation. But both of those approaches would be wrong. So David asked for generosity, kindness, and compassion. Let's see how it turns out. Verse 9. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David. And I love this. And then they ceased. They said everything David told them to say, and then they shut up. (laughs) It means they waited for a response. They didn't add anything to it. They didn't add anything to what David said. They didn't threaten. They didn't accuse. They were simply faithful messengers. And that is a great reminder for us. God does not need us to fight his battles. He doesn't need us to stick up for his good name. He doesn't need us to exact vengeance on those who respond wrongly to him. It's our job to share the message and add nothing of our own to it. Nothing of our own to it. Well, Nabal, verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Should I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my, my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not where they be from? <laughs> who is David? Just a fugitive. Who's a son of Jesse? He doesn't come from an important family. And you know what? There'd be many servants nowadays that break away, rebel against their every man from his master. David's a nobody, and you guys are just a bunch of rebels. Why should I help him? Why should I trust you? You're just a bunch of runaways. And yet, if we see closely the language in verse 11, we can see what his real issue is. Shall I then take my bread, my water, my meat, my shears? He didn't want to part with his stuff. It's always telling when someone is talking to me and they speak of my fill-in-the-blank. It's always telling. I'm, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't go here. It's Sunday night. (laughs) I'm extremely 
I was raised very conservative in my outlook. You know, I, I, you work hard, you know, you, 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 know, you pay your taxes and your expectation is other people do the same. And so, you know, that's always been my outlook. But then I started hearing this thing come around in the early 2000s in the church. Why should my tax money go and have to pay for people who don't want to work? I heard Christians saying this over and over and over again. And I thought, I thought, well, philosophically, I agree. But something, something turned me off to that. Like there was something about it just seemed wrong. The, the mentality, the mindset, the, the way the verbiage was coming out. And I thought, Lord, I thought, why, why is my spirit bothered by this? Why, why is my heart bothered by this? I mean, I'm, I kind of have the same viewpoint. I, I mean, I've done ministry to those who were struggling or homeless or you know, going through difficult times. I've done it for many years. And, and yet I, I, I lean this way in my viewpoints, and I don't sense them necessarily changing. But something about the way this is being verbalized, it, it's convicting me. Like, it shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening by brothers and sisters around me. And then it hit me. It's not my stuff. It's not your stuff. What's your problem with caring about what someone else does with your stuff? It's not yours to begin with. I am not criticizing one viewpoint or another in regards to how you feel about the government spending tax money. That's not the purpose of this conversation. Diatribe. I, I, it's always telling when I'm tempted to say my stuff. I, I, I'm always aware that when that's my mentality, something's wrong in here. And whatever my viewpoint may be about how the best way to do things in life is, that needs to change in my heart because I'm always simply a steward of God's stuff. God had blessed this man incredibly. It wasn't his sheep you know, it, it wasn't his water, his bread, his meat. It wasn't his, she- they weren't his shearers, you know. These are, these are not, <clears throat> I've, I've been in management pretty much my entire life as far as employment goes. They've never been my employees. They were never my staff. They were never my workers or how, whatever you want to phrase it. They're the Lord's. It's not my wife, my kids. They're the Lord's kids. It's the Lord's bride. And I'm going to give an account for how I treat his stuff. A Christian shouldn't never miss say my stuff. It's all the Lord's stuff. I'm just his steward. Nabal's love of his stuff, his things, that was the real issue. And when the messengers return with that kind of response to David, it does not go over well with David. (laughs) Look at verse 12. So David's young men turned their way. They turned back the the road they've come, and they turned around and came and told him, David, all those sayings. And look at David's reaction, verse 13. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. They girded on every man his sword. And then David, he also put on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 remained with their stuff. They had some supplies, and so he left 200 men behind to keep an eye on their stuff. And he takes 400 men down the road to go kill 
I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you David's intent here is not just to go take 400 guys and kill Nabal. They're about to wipe out an entire factory of people. Now why, why such the heavy reaction from David? I mean, he's had quite a few people treating him like this thus far. Why, why is this the straw that breaks the camel's back? It, it doesn't tell us. But from David's verbiage later on in the chapter, it will be clear that he's had enough. He's done. He's done being mistreated. He's done being lied about. He's done being insulted. Everybody wants to treat me like a bitter rebel? Fine, I'll show them exactly what a bitter rebel looks like. None of you have ever said words like that, right? No, no, no. David's reaction, of course, is incredibly wrong. As I said earlier, he's not taking 400 men to exact vengeance on one guy. He's going to slaughter everyone who works for Nabal. And the Bible calls that murder. This would be a great sin against the Lord, against the Lord's people. David isn't being godly in this response. He's not even being reasonable right now. He's throwing off all restraints and he's taking the path of least resistance to deal with his problems. And thankfully, somebody else has a reasonable heart in this situation. Look down at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, one of, it says, a lad of the lads, <laughs> is what the Hebrew says here. This is a young, young guy. This is a, a, he's fresh off the, fresh off the, whatever they come from, you know, fresh off the boat, whatever you call it. You know, he is a, he is a brand spanking new employee. This is not a guy that, you know, is, is respected amongst the employees. He's just a young guy. And he goes right to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and he says, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute. The word actually means to bless, to bless our master. And he railed on them. He slandered them, insulted them, defamed them. But, the word but there is because that type of response was undeserved. The men were very good unto us. We were not hurt. Neither did we miss anything as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. They were like a wall unto us both by night and by day. These guys were like city walls. Whenever they were around, we felt safe. All the while that we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. The, the phrase there, it's much stronger than that. It means it's, you needed to know this information and you need to really think carefully about what you do next. Why? Because evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. This young guy gets it. He says, listen, he goes, what he has done here is caused a chain reaction and something is set in stone. Something is determined. This, some calamity, some distress, some misery is not just going to hit him. It's going to hit all of us because of what he did. Because he is such a son of Belial, a son of Satan, a son of wickedness, that a man can't even talk to him. It's interesting that this young fellow here, he defines being a son of Satan or being a wicked person as being a person that nobody can talk to. Nobody can influence you. Nabal's unreasonable. He doesn't listen to anybody. Not even certain death would change his mind. Is there anyone that can call you out when you're being foolish? 
Are there any people in your life that you'll listen to no matter how much you don't like what they might tell you? Does anyone have that place in your life? Because if you don't have anyone like that in your life, you're bound to make lots of bad decisions. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, later on, Solomon, long after David is gone, Solomon will say this, Proverbs eleven fourteen. He says, where no counsel is, the people fall. That, that word fall there refers to calamity. They're going to experience ruin, misery. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety, security. You know, I am so grateful because I've always had people who could speak into my life at any moment. I've always had individuals that they knew that they, if they saw something, they could come up to me and they could say, Will, I love you, but you're off. You're, you're out of bounds. I'm so grateful for that because it's kept me from making a lot of bad decisions. It's kept me from making those type of life-altering decisions that can wreck you. Do you have anyone like that? You know, one of the first questions I ask someone when they come to me and they're telling me about a horrible situation, I don't know what to do. And the first thing I say is, do they have anyone that they respect, anyone that they listen to, anyone that could speak into their life? And more often than not, when it's a really bad situation, the answer to that question is no. They won't listen to anybody. You know, I've told my kids, <laughs> I, tell, I tell young people this all the time. I say, if the people who love you the most are concerned about the decisions you're making, that should be sending up all sorts of red flags. Because if you're going to blow through all of those Bob barricades, you're likely headed for a cliff. You're likely headed for a ditch. There's a reason that those warning signs are being brought into your life. I remember being that young. Nobody understood me. I get it. But the danger is thinking that because, well, I'm trying my best or I believe my motives are good, is that that somehow guarantees I'll do make good choices. And it does not. <laughs> because you can be very foolish and have good motives. <laughs> you, can, you can be unwise. You can be inexperienced and have great motives. That's why it's good to have support systems around you. It's good to have people that can say, hey, I'm not sure that uh, responding to the famous prince in Nigeria with your bank account number is a wise decision. <laughs> we chuckle. But I think we all know somebody who's made a choice similar in quality to that, that you think if you'd probably just listened to a few people, you'd be in a, not be in this situation. What's interesting about this employee is he's not necessarily coming to Abigail out of concern for Nabal. You can tell he doesn't have a high opinion of his boss. But what he realizes is that his master's foolishness is going to negatively affect them all. This ruin, this calamity, this misery, it's going to come upon our entire household. And Abigail knows her husband well enough to know that this young man is correct. And so in verse 18, we see her response. It says, Then Abigail made haste. She took 200 loaves, 200 bottles of wine, five sheep ready dressed, they'd already slaughtered, prepared for eating. 
And five measures of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins. These are pressed together lumps of uh, dried grapes. Sounds yummy. Same thing, cakes of figs. is where you take dried figs and you press them together into like a, a little bar, you know, a little granola bar or whatever. She took all this stuff and she laid them on a bunch of donkeys and she said to her servants, go on before me, go in front of me. Behold, I come after you. I love it because she's saying, I'm not using you as a decoy so I can get away. I am coming. Behold, I come after you. Go ahead. You go in front of me with the stuff. I, I'm coming after you. And then it mentions here, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now, I want to pause here for a second. Just because you think your husband is making a really dumb decision doesn't mean you should act independently of your husband. There are better ways to handle that. I bring this up because Abigail is not trying to be deceptive here. She's not trying to act like someone who's not married because we're going to, probably not tonight, but we will read that she does tell her husband what she did eventually. And we'll see why she didn't initially tell him here when we get to that part later in the chapter. She has a good reason. Verse 20, and it was so, as she rode on the donkey, that she came down by the covert of the hill, the hidden part of the hill. I think she came down that way because she wanted to, I don't know for sure, but my guess is she wanted to interact with David without anyone seeing. I think because what she's probably thinking is if my husband gets wind of this, he's going to come down and and come itching for a fight, and then we're all going to all get slaughtered. I don't know that for sure, but that's what it seems to be here. I don't think she's trying to be sneaky. And when she gets down there, behold, it says David and his men came down against her. The phrase there means to meet her, came down to meet her, and she met them. So the servants she had sent ahead had already reached David with her gift, and so David said, oh, yeah, fine, I'll meet with her. And so now we're going to actually pause here in verse 21. We're going to pause to go back in time to get a glimpse of David's mentality as he's coming up to meet Nabal uh, before these servants found him. And his mindset is not pretty. Look at verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him and he has requited me evil for good. So and more also do God unto the enemies, enemies of David if I leave of all that pertained to him by the morning light any that beep against the wall. <laughs> Those of you laughing have an old King James Version. That's, that's why. Because it's got some language in there I don't want to repeat from the pulpit. <laughs> David was so fuming mad that he'd been verbalizing his thoughts during the trip. He's marching on the way down, and he's like, certainly in vain have I kept all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing is missed of all that pertains to him. He has required me evil for good. In other words, I did the right thing for no good reason, for nothing, for nothing. Doesn't pay to do the right thing. Doesn't pay to help others. Look at what it's done to me. You know, David's not the only one to ever go through that struggle. Asaph, one of his worship leaders after he became king, went through a similar struggle. Turn to Psalm 73 with me. We read it in our scripture reading. 
He starts off the psalm. He starts off with the truth because he's going to take us into the depths of bad attitude for a little bit. The truth is, truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. That's the truth. Truth is this. God's always good to those whose hearts are pure towards him. I'm not good is what he's going to tell us. (laughs) And the reason I was off is because my heart wasn't pure. I was in a bad spot. I was in a dark place. He said, as for me, my feet, almost, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. I almost went down a path that would have wrecked me spiritually. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious. I saw how good they had it. And he's going to go on. I'm not going to read all the verses. You can read it on your own where he talks about how good they had it and what he saw with his eyes. He said, I watched the righteous man struggle his whole life, and he goes into the grave. I watched a a wicked man be blessed his whole life, and everything's good. He's prosperous and happy, and he goes into the grave. And I came to the conclusion, what does it matter? What does it matter how you live? He said in verse 13, this was his conclusion. Truly, I have cleansed my hands in vain and washed my hands in innocency. I'm naive. I am foolish. I can't believe I bought this malarkey. Can't believe I listened to people who told me that doing the right thing and being good pays. He said, he said, but I came to a place now where I'm saying if I'm going to say that still, I would, I would be so wrong. That's so wrong. That mindset I had was so wrong. I would offend against the generation of your children. I would be stumbling others down the same path I almost stumbled down. Now, he goes back. He says, when I was trying to understand this, when I was trying to understand how this all worked out, he goes, it was too painful for me, man. It was rough until, until I did this, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. It's not just about this life. You see, Asaph came to a conclusion. I don't do what's right, so good comes back to me. You know, it's interesting when you hear people motivational speakers, philosophers talk today and they talk about why it's you know, the right thing to do good things. Because, I mean, if you bring up the concept of, well, there's no God, the, you know, there's no, there's no you know, standard or whatever, you know, they say, well, but we're still good people and here's why you need to do good, do good things. And of course, you're sitting there, well, why does it matter? Well, no, no, this is why. When you do good things, good things come back to you. When you do good things, you feel good. All sorts of reasons where it's, you know, you get some kind of benefit. There's some type of legal contract that's working here, a karma type of thing, where, you know, if you do the good things, then you're better off. That's a lie. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach anything about legalism. That's not why we do what's right. We don't do what's right so good things come back to us. That's the very definition of legalism. I do this and you give me heaven, God. And it's the same thing if we expect that God is required to bless us because we've been good. 
Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 21 says, Thus was my heart grieved. I was pricked in my reins, my very soul. It, I, it got down to the, a soulish issue. I realized something's so wrong about how I'm approaching my relationship with God. I was convicted. I was spiked. God found something in my soul that was so off. It was so wrong. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. But here's what he understood. Despite all my bad attitude, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And you held me up by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. And so what does Asaph conclude? I love this. He doesn't say, ooh, I'm gonna have lots of riches in heaven or you know, I'm gonna get you know, 100 virgins at my disposal only. Sorry, ladies, you don't have any equivalent of that. 100 virgins at my disposal because I've been good to Allah. Look at what Asaph says in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Our motivation for doing the right thing is to please our Lord. Just like Asaph later remembered. It's because we love Jesus, right? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you want good to come back to you, keep my commandments. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. David, of course, is not quite there yet. He's back in the foolish part of Asaph's <laughs> song there. And so he is ready to take matters into his own hands. In Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 25, verse 22, David says, So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertains to him by the morning, light any that urinates against the wall. In other words, he says... <laughs> He says, so and more also God do unto the enemies of David if I spare anybody, any male. He doesn't plan on killing the, the women, but he says, if I find a male there, any, anybody that stands up to pee, if I find him, I'm killing him. <laughs> Interesting how gender wasn't as confusing for them back then. <laughs> do you stand up when you pee? You're a dude, you know? <laughs> I don't care how you feel. Your anatomy says otherwise. <laughs> Guess what I'll learn at church tonight? <laughs> if I spare a single man that's with Nabal, may God ruin the rest of their lives. That's what David's saying. Yeah, he's not in a good spot right now. And God is certainly not down with his plan. He can say, God, do this or whatever, but God's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that, David. Because in a sense, isn't David becoming like Saul here? And it's into this mindset, this mindset that David has as he's marching down there with his sword strapped on, 400 guys with him. That's the mindset that Abigail connects with David into. Verse 23. She's got her work cut out for her. And when Abigail, verse 23, saw David, she hasted 
and lighted off the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let your handmaid, I pray you, speak in your audience and hear the words of your handmaid. You ever been in a situation where someone says something and it's so wrong, so hurtful, so offensive, and, and you've not been the one to do anything wrong in the situation, and then you go home and you cry out to the Lord about it, and the Lord's like, hey, you need to go make this right. You ever been there? I don't know about you, but I'm normally like, I'm sorry, I think I heard incorrectly. What, what do you mean I need to go make this right? I didn't do anything wrong. There is so much character, so much humility, so much of a submissive heart toward the Lord here from Abigail so much courage because upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. Kill me and be done with it. Leave everybody else safe. I mean, that's in essence what she's saying. She's hoping David won't do that. We'll get to that in a second. But she comes down. She takes the position of an inferior. Now, David's coming to murder her entire family, all of the people that work for her. And she takes the position of an inferior. She doesn't stand her ground. She doesn't, you know, put her chin up. She falls on her face before David, bows her face to the ground, right at his feet, And then she says, upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. The word iniquity means guilt, liability for wrongdoing. Let me bear the punishment for my husband's sin. You know, it's interesting. This is not a woman who doesn't care about her husband, even though he's a jerk. She's attempting to save his life and the lives of everyone who works for him at the cost of her own life. That's what she's willing to do here. Now, she pauses at this point. That's what the colon is there for because her hope is that David won't just chop her head off or run her through. Her hope is that David won't take vengeance upon her. She hopes that he'll give her a chance to fix the situation. And so, when David doesn't kill her, she says, let your handmaid, I pray you, speak in your audience and hear the words of your handmaid. And so David gives her the opportunity, verse 25. She says, let not my Lord, I pray you, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your handmaid, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you did send. The phrase there, let not my Lord regard this man of Belial. The, the phrase, let not regard, it's actually five words in Hebrew, and it means don't let something find a place in your heart. And that's exactly what had happened, right? Like Nabal had, with, when the guys came back, hell, how'd it go? Well, David, uh, 
Here's what Nabal said. Ooh, it was, like a, it was like a slam dunk right in his heart. All those words were just right there in David's heart. And they had found a home. They had set up shop. And the entire time David's thinking about it, he's just thinking, oh, yeah, that's what you said? You know, I always say I like to keep people in a little cage in my heart, everyone, you know, and then I just bring them out every once in a while and like, doo, 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 put them back in. <laughs> when I'm really mad at somebody, when I'm really angry like that, because that's what you do. You have conf- you know, fictional conversations with them or you put them in their place. You know, you have moments. Wow, you're laughing really hard about that. <laughs> I've struck a nerve. <laughs> you know, we, we imagine what we're going to say, what we're going to do. You know, you've got, all, you, you, you've got their part that you're bringing up in the conversation. And you're, oh, yeah, and then I say this and ah, you know. And, I mean, oh. We do that. That's what David had done. Instead of guarding his heart and, you know, letting the Lord protect him, he had just opened it up and and all that hurt and everything, he let it all in and then he let it stay there to stew and fester. And she tells him, do not, (laughs) do not let the words of this son of Satan, son of the devil, sit in your heart. You know, man of Belial means Satan's man. He's a troublemaker. Nabal's his name because that's what he is. He's a fool. Folly is with him. The word there means to be senseless, disgraceful, foolish. Don't let that, the words of a fool, guide your life. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the Lord can break through those moments where I'm all angry and he's just like, well, you really, I mean, you, you think really poorly of this per- person's statements. Yes, I do. You, you think really poorly about the actions. Yeah, I do. They were wrong. Why are they, why do you care then? If you disagree with them that highly, then why do you place such value on them? Oh, oh, Lord, but it hurts. It's wrong. It's not fair. And every time those words come in my mind, all I see is the cross. I don't have the right to bring those words to God. I mean, I can verbalize it. He's big enough to handle it. That's not the point. And he wants us to pour our hearts out to him. But those words are not going to, he's not going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. It's not fair. Go get him. I got your back. He says, Will, you, you already know what's not fair. that's where the wrestling begins. Will I allow that to remain festering in my heart? Or will I replace it with something else, something true? And that's what she tells him to do. She says, don't let that find a place in your heart. Instead, let this find its place in your heart. I, your handmaid, did not see the young men of my Lord who you did send. I was not there when your men asked for help. But as soon as I heard your men came and what my husband said, I had a different response, and I'm here to deliver it if you'll receive it. Verse 26, now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, I love that. I'm not, my husband may be Satan's man, but I'm not Satan's woman. My Lord, as the Lord lives, as a God-fearing woman, and as your soul lives, Seeing that the Lord has withheld you from coming to shed blood and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now let your enemies and they that seek evil to my Lord be like Nabal. 
And now this blessing which your handmaid has brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. She gives him two blessings here. She says, first off, I'd like to thank God for his mercy in not allowing you to kill me and all my household. And I want to ask that God make any of your enemies as dumb as my husband. And I want to give you this blessing, all this stuff you see here on these donkeys. Abigail's not a fool. She recognizes that David's plan was to take matters into his own hand. David didn't really have any intention of following the Lord at this point. She also recognizes that it's God who stepped in to keep David from doing this evil. And yet, instead of reproaching David for his hot temper, she returns the blessing he gave, because he did initially give a blessing. She returns it with one of her own. Now, Abigail could have ended the conversation there. But she has a concern, not just for peace between David and her household now. She has a concern for the rest of David's life. I don't know how she knows this, but she knows that David is destined to be in a position of authority over Nabal later on as king. And she doesn't want this to come back on them then. Look at verse 28. I pray you, forgive the trespass of your handmaid. Remember, she didn't do anything wrong, but she took it upon herself. There's a godly woman here, a humble woman, courageous woman. I pray you, forgive. The word that means to lift off and carry away. We are guilty but I'm, and we deserve a penalty, but I'm asking you to lift that guilt and that penalty off and to send it away from me. Forgive the trespass of your handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil has not been found in you all of your days. And yet a man has risen to pursue you and to seek your soul, for the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord your God. And the souls of your enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. (laughs) Abigail says, listen, forgive us, because I know God has something better for you than this. David, if you come and you slaughter all of us here, there's going to be a penalty for that. I know that God has a better plan for you. I don't believe you're gonna stay a fugitive, David. Your character's well known. You've been a faithful captain for the Lord. I believe you're not trying to overthrow Saul like the rumors say. And so despite Saul's wrong toward you, I believe God's gonna keep you safe and establish you. I love what she says here, that the soul of my Lord, David, will be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord. The phrase means that I believe, she says, your soul, David, it is it is. is, it is bound up in the sack of the living, <laughs> is what she says. And the image is of a, of a man who goes on a journey and he puts his most important belongings in a sack to keep them safe. She's saying, you're in the Lord's sack, David. He's gonna protect you and he's gonna drive off all your enemies. And when that's done, I know you'll be our next king. And so her mindset is this, when that happens, I wanna know that you have forgiven us and you won't seek vengeance for the wrong that we've done to you today. Look at verse 30. It shall come to pass when the Lord shall have given done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall have appointed you ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto you. 
nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that you have shed blood causeless or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember your handmaid. I love it. She says, not only will you not have grief over this situation, I'm trying to bless you now to take care of that, but I also don't want you to have an offense of the heart. The phrase here actually means a stumbling of your heart into sin. Get him, girl. I don't want that to happen to you, David. I don't want this to be grief unto you, nor a stumbling of your heart into sin. Either that you shed blood causeless, you do it for no reason, which is what you're thinking about doing right now, killing a bunch of people who didn't do anything wrong to you, or to take vengeance. That would be upon Nabal. I don't want you to do either of those things, David. She didn't want David to become fearful of their loyalty later on when he became king and wiped them out. She didn't want David to become like Saul had become. And you know, Abigail may be speaking the words, but I 100% believe that the Lord is speaking to David here. Yes, Abigail is wise, and she is by far the most reasonable person in this situation. But I believe the Lord is warning David that he's about to travel down a path that Saul's already taken a path that would be very difficult to return from if he starts down it. And I have found that God is similarly gracious with us. When we are headed down a path that dishonors him, he puts numerous speed bumps in our way to get our attention, to reason with us, so we'll be reasonable and turn around. Because here's the truth. How David responds to Abigail here will determine what kind of king he's going to be, even though he's not a king yet. I've heard many Christians say, well, I'm not important right now, or I'm not influential, and I'll make sure to behave better when I am important or influential someday. But the truth is, if you won't behave correctly now, you're not going to do it when you're in a different position. I am who I am now. Being in a different position never changes that. So here's the big question. How does David respond? Does he have a reasonable heart? We need to come back next Sunday night to find out because we're out of time. (laughs) So while we don't have an answer to that question yet, you can read ahead and be spoiled. In fact, I encourage you to do that. But what we can know this week is that Abigail had a reasonable heart. She humbled herself even though she did nothing wrong because she knew that's what was required to spare a ton of lives. And if David had responded with that similar reasonable heart, in the first place, there wouldn't have even been this crisis. When we talk about being reasonable or having a reasonable heart, it doesn't mean leaning on your own understanding. That's a mistake. (laughs) God's not saying lean on your own understanding or logic. That's being prideful. But we are to be open to whatever God wants us to do, even if it means it's not fair. That is true wisdom. It's true logic. It's being reasonable because you reverence God above all else. Let's all stand. Lord, you know us from top to bottom. You know the deepest, most 
darkest parts of our hearts, the things that we've thought, the arguments we've had with people when we've been angry and wounded. You know what we've allowed to be placed within our hearts so that we become unreasonable, that your word doesn't have that in into our hearts like it needs to in these situations. So, Lord, we ask that you would teach us to be like you, who, Lord, you did so many things and subjected yourself to lots of things that weren't fair at all. You had many opportunities to stand up for yourself where you could have righted every wrong. And yet, Lord, you didn't so that more could be spared. And in the end, you went to a cross you didn't deserve to be on so that all could be saved. Lord, teach us to be like you, to have reasonable hearts that are willing to do what you say even if it even if, well, it just seems wrong in our hearts. It seems unfair, unjust. Help us to be willing to do what's necessary, what your word tells us, that others might know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.